Good morning. Welcome to IPELRA, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are talking about scandal in the workplace. But before we get into our topic, I want to remind our listeners that we're back. The annual training conference is next week in Galena. We're so excited to see you. We've missed your faces. It's been two years, but we are back and we are better than ever. Please, if you haven't signed up yet, sign up, come join us. We have some outstanding training, some excellent speakers, and some really fun events planned as well. With us today is a legendary IPELRA supporter and longtime friend of the organization, Miss Lee Jeter. Lee, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Megan. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me with you today. We wanted to talk about uh, this topic, and we really couldn't think of anyone better to deliver the message on what we need to know. So uh, especially in this day and age, it, it seems like every time I turn on the news or I, or I open the newspaper, I'm, I'm reading about a different kind of scandal. So Lee, tell us, what kind of scandals may occur in the workplace? You know, there's all kinds of different scandals. Um, It could be anything from a sexual harassment, race discrimination or harassment, bullying, a whistleblower, a fraud case, um, union issues, ethics issues. Uh, It really runs into all sorts of different areas. Um, And no one really knows what's going to rise to the level of a scandal, but Obviously, with press and within organizations, you see this occur. Yeah. And I think when you just hear the word scandal, it just it sends chills down my spine and I immediately go into panic mode and I think, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? And and for our listeners, when you know you think about your role as an HR director or a person working in local government, we have covered how to handle investigations in previous podcasts. So if you go through our archives, you can find some quality content and and listen to some shows that will talk more about how to conduct an investigation. But let's get a handle on the situation right right now outside of investigations. What should you do if a situation becomes known within or outside the organization? How do you how do you communicate that? What communication should you put in place about a situation and who should be the spokesperson? Yeah, um, you know, over the past 25 years, I have counseled a variety of clients about scandals. Um, The situations can obviously be difficult to manage, particularly if they involve higher level employees or issues that are also being addressed in the media. Um, And whether something rises to that level of a scandal sometimes depends on the political climate and what's kind of the, the issue of the day. So for example, when the Me Too movement was really hot. We saw lots of issues involving sexual harassment. With Black Lives Matter, we saw a lot of focus on race issues. Um, When there's been whistleblower issues in government um, at maybe a national level or even an international level, we see those same types of issues at the local level being focused on. And so If the situation becomes known, um, how much information is shared really depends on the situation. 
In many cases, less is more. Um, that said, for the most part, um, details regarding an investigation that's going on should usually only be shared with those who need to know about it. Um, if someone questions you about, hey, I heard about X, what's going on? You can simply say, we're aware of the concerns. We take these concerns seriously. We are looking into it or investigating it. And, you know, we'll address it appropriately depending on the results of the investigation. With press inquiries, the decision-making is a little bit trickier. So with press inquiries, um, a lot of times you're not going to want to share a lot of information, particularly if you're in the midst of an investigation, you don't want to uh, spell out exactly what's going on and necessarily what the, the outcome may be. However, particularly at the end of an investigation, um, I found that a lot of organizations kind of default to the no comment idea. And that is not always to the community's best interest. Um, I mean, it's it, at times you want to provide a specific number of talking points. You want to make sure that obviously those are well vetted and consistent with the investigation. Um, and in terms of your your last question about who's the right spokesman for that or spokeswoman for that, that also can be different depending on the situation. So mm -hmm. if it's mostly an internal type matter, oftentimes it could be uh, the executive director or the village manager, the village administrator. If it is a legal matter, I often will suggest that you use either your inside attorney or your outside attorney to, to field those questions. I literally had a matter very recently uh, that did receive some press inquiries and it did involve a legal matter. And so, you know, I acted as kind of the spokesperson along with one of my legal colleagues to field those questions in a manner that we thought was effective, address the seriousness of the situation, but also identified uh, what the community or the organization's response to that was. And I think that's solid advice. I think oftentimes we hear, um, oh, we can't comment on pending litigation. That to me is just like a big red stop sign. And yeah, it's absolutely appropriate in certain times, but other times you want to kind of get in front of the crisis or get ahead of it. And remember that you have uh, a duty and an obligation to be as transparent as you can about certain things and perhaps even soften the blow or or redirect uh, the nature of this by, by offering some information. Yeah. And Megan, you know, that's a great point. I mean, it, at times you may want to say, we do not comment on the specifics of pending litigation. However, we can tell you that our organization, you know, whether it's your local government union uh, unit, your park district, whatever it is, um, we can say that we are committed to the principles of XYZ and address them as necessary in our organization. And so without getting into, no, we deny this. Yes, we admit that. You still spell out 
how the organization feels about whatever the greater issue is that's being addressed. Sure. Something you could even say, you know, we take all allegations of blah, 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 seriously. We're committed to having a, you know, a robust and thorough investigation. Just some, you know, it's something that repositions yourself or again, like you said, states the purpose and demonstrates that you, that you are addressing this seriously and that you do have integrity. I remember years ago at, at our conference, we actually had a, a woman come who had written a book exclusively about scandal. And she had talked about, uh, having uh, a plan, make sure you have your communication plan ready when you have a scandal. Well, that's all fine and good, but what steps can we do proactively to reduce the chances of scandal or unethical behavior in the workplace? I'd rather be on the other side of the scandal and preventing it from happening. What do you have to say about that? Well, one of the key things I love doing as an attorney, an employment law attorney, is really focusing on what can I help you as an organization do to prevent litigation? Um, and, and over the course of my career, I've really tried to develop a lot of strategies and thoughts on that. And so one of the first things that I always recommend is have really good, strong, up-to-date policies. And that means that the policies have been audited on a regular basis to make sure they're up to date and consistent with the most recent changes with the law. Um, and having the policies is great, but that's not enough. You also have to enforce the policies and convey an attitude that you're committed to them. The second thing I would say is a really robust training program. And, and you know, and IPELRA certainly um, also advocates this, um, that training is so important and you need a certain level of training for all of your employees, but you also need a higher level training for supervisors, managers, higher level employees, and at times uh, your elected officials as well. And the, the reason I say that is that supervisors, managers, your high-level employees, even your elected officials or appointed officials are those that often will model the behavior and the conduct that's acceptable in the organization and really what is viewed as acceptable in an organization comes from the top down. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I, I did a presentation last week on customer service and that's, you know, that's exactly what we, we talked about as well, you need to model the behavior that you want in the workplace. So, yeah. and, and I couldn't agree with you more too about, about training as well. I mean, I, Paul Rod, that's what we do. We're known for our training. We're always promoting training and yeah, fine and good to have policies, but how do you make sure people are aware of the policies? How do people know that this sort of activity or behavior is frowned on in the organization unless we are modeling that behavior, if we have a demonstrated code of ethics or we're training on these things, um, we need to make sure everyone is aware of that. So on, on that note, talk to us about um, leadership or employee training and civility or, or even ethics in the workplace. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, some training is actually required for certain employees. For example, you may need open meetings act training for certain employees and elected officials. 
There is the Public Officer Prohibited Activities Act, gift ban regulations, etc. Um, should you have a code of conduct or ethics and train employees and elected officials on that? Absolutely. Um, most of the public employers that I've worked with do have a code of conduct or ethics policy in place. And local governments, in fact, um, are required to have their own local ethics ordinances. They have to be at least as strong as what state law requires as a minimum. And then I think to that point, and this goes back a little bit to how do you make sure you're being proactive is when an issue occurs, make sure that you are addressing it in a timely manner. And if there is an issue that arises that is inconsistent with either the law or the organization's policies, that you're taking appropriate action. And that really goes a long way, not only to potentially reducing the risk of liability, but also it sends a really important message to your employees that you take these issues seriously and that you will take action when something is done that is not consistent with your philosophy, your values, your policies and your principles. And I think you brought up a great point too. A lot of the scandals that I'm reading about in the newspaper and see on the news have to do with timeliness. Um, it's not enough to just address it, but to address it in an appropriate manner and make sure that time hasn't elapsed before you've decided to act on that. Um, so I think that's outstanding. And the other thing you mentioned was um, uh, code of conduct and, and ethics policies. I know a lot of our elected officials look to the Illinois Municipal League and they have published some sample ordinances on ethics and, and things that, that you can adopt in your own municipality as a starting place if you don't already have that. Absolutely. Um, There's some really nice templates that can be used at a minimum as a starting point. Um, certainly, you also may have internal or even external resources that can help you with fashioning those policies to make it work best for your organization. Um, but overall, I think having policies in place and making sure those are, again, consistent with the most recent changes in the law become important. Agreed. Agreed. Now, when we think about um, scandals and different types of scandals in your work, your, in the workplace, I think the one that um, that I'm hearing about the most in the news, at least these days, I, I know I heard a story about a mayor in another town, um, has to do with conflicts of interest. So what, in your opinion, would you consider is a conflict of interest and what can be done to address it? Well, that <laughs> that's a huge question. Um <laughs> <laughs> As you might imagine, um, and it, it, you know, I I do work outside of Illinois as well, but let's focus on Illinois. So, from a legal statutory um, standpoint, in Illinois, conflicts of interest typically arise where a public official has one a direct or indirect interest in some contract or work where the official may be called to act on or vote on the award of the contract. 
Secondly, I mean, and quite frankly, obviously, a public official can't directly or indirectly take money or something of value as a gift, a bribe, a means of influencing their vote or their action. Um, there are some exemptions that apply in some situations, but in terms of addressing a conflict of interest, the law explains that an officer who does have a conflict of interest either has to resign or divest that interest. And in a lot of cases, at least under Illinois law, recusal is not going to be considered enough. Um, and if there is an established issue of a conflict of interest, uh, there can, in, in some cases, we don't see this that often, but in some cases, uh, there are some criminal and other penalties that can uh, be put in place. And some of those penalties can be prison, fines, oh. even forfeiture of officer office. Right. Wow. Um, and I, I mean, I think my first encounter with conflicts of interest were back in the day when I worked in the county clerk's office and we had to administer those economic interest statements. And it was for uh, elected officials, boards and commissioners, employees working in certain capacities for, for them to do exactly what that is, to um, divulge what your interests are, who you are doing business with, what um, ownership you may have in certain companies, things like that. So doing a little pivot here, how do you establish a workplace based on professionalism rather than patronage or favoritism? I think there's a couple of ways, and it kind of goes back to my earlier comments. I think first having, again, I'll probably be repeating myself, but I think first having really strong policies that are also enforced, having good training, making sure that your high-level employees and elected officials are, as we talked about, modeling good behavior and appropriate legal behavior and making sure things are addressed quickly. I think those are some of the, the core values on that. I think, too, in today's environment, um, one of the areas I've started incorporating more and more into my training is issues of unconscious bias. Mm. And making supervisors, managers, others making decisions aware of the fact that, look, we all come to the come to the scene with certain biases or stereotypes or preconceived notions. That is not always bad. We we all have a first impression of someone based on our prior experiences. However, Everyone has to be super careful that they do not allow those prior experiences to impact how they are viewing an individual today. Um, I'm actually doing an investigation currently. Um, it's actually with a private sector employer, not anyone probably listening to this. Um, and I was speaking with one of the witnesses this afternoon, and she was talking about her concern that there was some unconscious bias and particularly with respect to people of color. Um, and she provided some really good examples that I think organizations, to the extent they can train their 
employees, managers, supervisors to be more aware of some of those preconceived notions and make sure that those preconceived notions are not impacting decisions uh, in the workplace is really imperative. Absolutely. And that, uh, you know, talk about hot topics of the day. I think there's probably not a municipality on the block that isn't already looking to um, devote some time and energy to this diversity, equity, and inclusion initiative that um, that we all are very interested in pursuing. Absolutely. So, so absolutely making sure that we're not engaging in any sort of unconscious bias. Uh, and I think the, the flip side to that is um, retaliation and um, whistleblowing on, on some of these things that are happening. I know there is a new state law regulating whistleblowers in the public sector. Can you speak to us about that for a little bit? Yeah, and it, it is a very new law. Um, basically, effective July 1 of this year, so 2021, um, Governor Pritzker signed into law uh, a provision known as the Illinois Safety, Accountability, Fairness, and Equity Today Act, which fortunately has a shortened acronym of SAFETY Act. Um, and many of those provisions deal with uh, criminal justice system issues and policing. However, for purposes of our discussion, a key change as it relates to whistleblowers is that the new act amended the Public Officer Prohibited Activities Act and essentially says a unit of local government, an agent of that government, any employee of that government cannot retaliate against an employee or a contractor who engages in certain protected activities. In other words, those individuals get whistleblower protections. Um, and in terms of what is improper governmental action, that can be any action by a local governmental employee, an elected official, or appointed member of a board or commission that's in violation of federal, state, or local law, that's an abuse of authority, that violates the public's trust or expectation, that's a danger to public health and safety, or is a significant waste of public funds. So it is a fairly broad definition. I will say that it does explain what isn't an improper governmental action, or at least what's not the focus of this new whistleblower protection, or for that matter, the Public Officer Prohibited Activities Act, are personnel actions. Um, and so if someone, if an, you have an employee complaining about a grievance or complaining about the fact that they were demoted or complaining about the fact that they were fired, this law presumably is not going to apply to them unless it amounts to retaliation for reporting improper governmental action, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction to make. So thank you for doing that. Um, so again, on the same subject, what what is an auditing official and who should assume that role in an organization? Yeah, I mean, under, this, under these new provisions, um, if an employee feels like they've been retaliated against 
for complaining about an improper governmental action, um, they have the right to make a written report uh, to the appropriate auditing official. And so the question is, well, who's an auditing official? And the auditing official is the person uh, who's responsible for essentially investigating it and taking it and taking action. Um, it can be a person who is designated by the organization internally to be the auditing official. If an organization does not identify an auditing official, it essentially reverts to the attorney general's office in the county where the local unit of government resides. Okay. Uh, and that actually reminds me of when I worked for the attorney general and, and they had um, an office of inspector general and it was a designated department. I know there was one statewide to investigate all the separate um, separate uh, offices, but this was one just within the attorney general's office. And it was charged with um, kind of being that auditing, auditing official. It was a central repository of where you would take complaints or any sort of ethics violations. And then this office in and of itself determined if the complaints were valid, invalid, and then um, investigated and made recommendations and on how to proceed and what actions to take. And it's really not a bad model. In fact, I think it might be a good model that we may wish to employ um, at the local level. So Lee, we are getting near our time here for today, but can you tell us are public sector employees required to have a whistleblower policy and what should it cover? Yeah, so at least under the Safety Act, what it requires organizations to do in part is it says that the auditing official has to establish written processes and procedures for managing complaints from individuals that come to their attention. They also have to provide employees with a complete copy or summary of this law um, at the beginning of their employment and annually every year. And as a result of that, I mean, the bottom line is organizations at the local unit of government need to have policies and procedures. Normally, that's going to need to be enacted through an ordinance process. Um, I have seen a number of communities who've already done so. And some of them, for example, with, with defining who the auditing officer is, some have said, well, that is our village manager. Some of them said that's going to be our city attorney or his or her designee. Some have said, we're not going to identify someone and you can go to the attorney general's office if you want to file a complaint. I mean, the whistleblower protections that are set forth in this act do say that to get the protections, the employee has to to file a report with the appropriate auditing official. And if they think they've been retaliated against, then they have to submit a written report to the auditing official, usually within 60 days. If there are complaints about the auditing official, then it again goes to the attorney general's office. So the bottom line is yes, if organizations haven't already done so, they really need to consider whether they need to, one, update, amend, or add policies to this effect, 
whether they need to work through the ordinance process to make sure that happens. And also, and this is really important, make sure that they are providing a copy of those new policies to employees, both at the time of hire and annually thereafter, because that that is a bit of a broader requirement than what we sometimes see in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, that's interesting, and it makes me wonder: um, Is Illinois just that progressive of a state that we have these th- these policies, or is it is this reactive? Is is it because of the history of perhaps some scandals that have happened in Illinois that we have these policies? Uh, I don't know that we need to answer that question. That's just uh, food for thought. But um, Leah, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Uh, you are always uh, a pleasure to speak with and so knowledgeable. If any of our listeners want to get in touch with you or they'd like more information on this topic, how can you be reached? Yeah, anyone can reach me um, through my bio. I am a uh, senior counsel at Michael Best and Friedrich. Um, and my number is on the website. My email is slgeter at michaelbest.com. Um, so it, it shouldn't be too hard to find me. And I will be in Galena presenting next week. So if anyone would like to do so, please join me um, in that session next week. Oh, fabulous. That's great. And I will make sure we put a link to your email and your phone number in the body of this podcast. So great. Um, We're really looking forward to that. And listeners, if you have anything you want to say, you know, we're listening, send us a recorded voice message. We can play on the show or join us on a future podcast. Connect with us through the website at www.ipelra.org. And of course, on Twitter at I-P-E-L-R-A. Support IPELRA by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals in local government. Join us next time with Mary Lynn Fiomi from HR Source, discussing uh, October as National Disability Employment Awareness Month. I'm Megan Falera. My co-host is Christina White, and our executive producer is Kay Argo. This has been Real Time with IPELRA. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.